Hi everyone, welcome to the Talk Birdie to Me podcast. Thank you all very much for tuning in and pressing play and thank you for your patience over the last number of weeks. Unfortunately, I was unable to press record due to finishing my master's dissertation and coincided with a move to Dublin meant the podcast took a back seat. Thankfully, I have some amazing guests lined up for the coming weeks for you to enjoy with some excellent stories to be shared. I also want to let you know about an order that I've put in with PRG Golf for some driver and tree wood head covers, alignment stick covers and towels. All of the information in regards to placing your order and pictures will be shared in the coming days, so please stay tuned on my social media channels. And enough from me, here is this week's guest, Chris Selfridge. Chris talks about his most recent event, the US Open at Winged Foot, his journey through the game from an elite amateur to a professional dealing with injuries and life as a caddy on the European tour. So without any further delay, here it is. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's podcast. Today I'm joined by European tour caddy and former professional golfer Chris Selfridge. How are you keeping Chris? I'm very well Shane and yourself? I'm very good. Thanks for taking the time out here today. I know you're busy in Scotland yeah, no problem. Um, it's nice. I'm back in the hotel now. I just had a nice shower. It was a cold morning, so um, I'm very comfy. Don't worry, I have plenty of time. You missed the best of the summer schedule because of COVID, and now it's obviously a lot of events at the tail end of the year. How are you finding conditions out there for the players? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I mean, we started up in July, did six in a row in the UK, which was very nice. I took the car over in the boat, drove from tournament to tournament, safe, stayed in the bubble. You know, it was a bit, bit monotonous, to say the least, but uh, it's good here. I mean... We got tournaments and then I had a week off and then we did Portugal. Obviously, I was in the States for a week. So it's, it's been busy, but it's been good busy. You know, it's been enjoyable. And hey, look, we're grateful to be playing tournaments this year. At one stage, it looked like the year was a bit of a write off. So to get sort of a half a season at it and a pretty intense half season, it's feeling pretty normal, you know. So How are you finding that bubble? There's obviously been a few players have pulled themselves from it and find it a bit intense. How do you find that? I'm finding it fine. It's... Obviously, the first six weeks in the swing, you know, you could only dine player and caddy together. And we weren't allowed to share rooms either. Um, so they, they had a, like a stipend thing where the, the player paid for half the caddy's room. So like, you know, the caddies weren't paying 140 quid a night, for example, in a hotel. But it was fine. Foxy's good company. You know, he's, he's so easy going. So that, that made it a bit easier having dinner together every night. We would have room service a couple of nights a week to break it up as well, depending on probably how you played that day and how you felt about joining me for dinner. But um, <laughs> I, no, it's, it's been fine. Um, obviously, we're able to share rooms now with, you know, other caddies. So that's a bit of company too. And, you know, I'm, I'm sharing with Duffy this week. Caddies for High Soul and we're, you know, watching the football in the evenings. and It feels pretty normal. Um, it's just... Here it is what it is, you know. It's uh, It was a bit monotonous, and it still is, but we're just grateful to be playing, you know. You've obviously had a lot of experience in the game from playing yourself and now caddying on tour. But take us back to the start of getting into golf and your interest in other sports. Uh, uh, I mean, I grew up playing football, um, uh, Gaelic football and soccer. And then, well, you know, I feel a bit mad saying soccer, but... <laughs> It's because I spent time in the state. Just just to make it clear, I football. I'm a Liverpool fan, but GAA on football, if you want to call it that. So yeah, just uh, live very close to a golf course. My dad played a little bit 
hitting golf balls around the football pitch. One thing led to another. And then before you know it, you're a junior member at the club and there's a good group, a good environment there and you're getting better and better. And yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it feels so long ago. It's kind of hard to explain, but just, you know, yourself growing up without Instagram and it's very different for the kids now. Back then, you know, we amused ourselves. We played golf, went to the course for 15 hours and had chipping comps for a pound, you know, so. Well, you must have won quite a few of those chipping competitions because you had quite a strong progression in the game. And as I believe, uh, you got to four at 13 years of age. Yeah, well, see, funny, you know, I was, um, so I would have been, you know, even even as an Irish boys international playing, you know, boys homes and boys Europeans, I still would have been the third best junior at my club. You know, so like when I when I was 15, for example, when I got the scratch or, yeah, pro- yeah, something that got scratched. I would have played my first home internationals. Now, we would have had two other people at my club in the team as well, Paul O'Kane and Luke Lennox. Yeah, probably the best three-man in Fred Gilly history. But <laughs> Yeah, I suppose it all helps, doesn't it? But yeah, I used to get beat by those boys all the time. You think that really helped your progression in the game by having that strong core of youth in your club? Must have. I mean, I didn't think about it at the time, of course. But yeah, obviously it was competitive. You know, boys, you know, whenever there's guys going to tournaments all over the place, you know, and sharing lifts and everyone's always competing, you know, you know, it's just, um, it must have had an influence. Yeah, definitely. As you progressed and started to make Irish teams, did the other players that you mentioned there, such as Paul in your club, did they follow on with you? Yeah, well, Paul would have played, uh, so Paul would have been the oldest. He would have been the first to make it. Then Luke, then me, obviously they were a few years older than me. And then me and Luke would have been playing boys and Paul would have went on and played a couple of home internationals, men's. And then I would have been 16, 17, and Luke would have been about, mm, I think Luke's two years older than me. So when I was 17 playing all that, Luke would have went on and made the men's team, and he played home internationals for the men's team once or twice. And then I came whenever I was 19 or 20, you know. So kind of all went at the same level. And when was it that you wanted to make a career for yourself in the game? Well, probably when I, obviously I wanted to go to college um, in America. That was what I wanted to do um well I had my doubts obviously at stages growing up you're a teenager you don't really know what you want or what's going on in the world but um I wanted that experience and then I got pretty good and wanted to try to make a career out of it you know once I started winning championships this that and the other and yeah obviously had three years at the pro ranks and yeah just you know one thing led to another but um I'd say about 20 2012, 2013, when I started winning championships in Ireland, it seemed a bit more realistic, you know. Yeah, you certainly had a busy few years there from 2012 on winning championships. And I believe the first one was the East of Ireland, where you came through in a playoff. The first one was Irish Close at Port Rush, and then the East was the week after. So they were both in June 2012. So, I mean, you're only a week out, so don't worry. But... Uh, uh yeah so yeah you were sent a playoff yeah I played Nicky Grant in a playoff actually so yeah it's fun memories you know and how did that buzz kind of I suppose at this stage you were competing you were probably on the Irish team or getting close to it and uh, how did you feel your game was that there kind of shaping up so I wouldn't have been in so that I would have been after my first year in college in America so I didn't make the men's team the year before the men's women international team so I would have been on the squad after boys golf but I didn't make the team um so I would have played, you know, years of boys golf, but I'd made the transition and I was 19 and just wasn't quite ready for the men's team yet. So I'd spent the year in the States at college and got a lot better, essentially. You know, it was probably a lot mature, probably 10 yards longer off the tee, you know, all those things that come with development. I think you, 
you do find that in, in golf. It is a pretty big jump from 18, you know, being the best under 18 in Ireland, and then all of a sudden you're struggling to make the men's team. There probably is a bit of a... I know they used to have youth golf back in the day, the under 21. So, like, when I was 19, I would have been in all the Irish under 21 teams, but it just wasn't quite good enough for the men's yet. And then 2012 was sort of the year where I finally was good enough, you know? And as you said there about you know, being tested, going from boys' golf to men's golf, but you also had that time in the University of Toledo in America. What were your biggest challenges over there? Or what were the biggest learnings you had? Uh, living away from home, you know, all the, all the usual. You sort of have to grow up pretty quick, you know, um, looking after yourself, time management, actually going to class when, you, you know, you're living by yourself. You know, you can party every night and drink as much as you want and have a good time, getting up, going to class, actually doing your practice, sort of learning how to become a man rather than a boy, you know, pretty quickly. So... Yeah, it was a brilliant experience, but I, I think um, I think you really do learn a lot of valuable life skills as well as traveling the country, playing great golf courses in a team environment. It's fantastic in every single way. Dude, when I'm describing it to you now, I'd love to go back and do it all again, but it's, uh, you know, life moves on, doesn't it? And do you think that was a big part to your progression by going to college in the States? Oh, definitely, definitely. That's That's where I essentially got better and started taking the game, you know, very seriously, and I started just before I went, about six months before I went, I started working with um, my golf coach that was my coach all through my amateur years and pro years, Johnny Foster. Um, absolutely brilliant golf coach. You know, I've spent so much time with golf coaches and even out in tour, met so, you know, all the guys and know, I, I don't want to say I know them well, I don't know them well, but spent time and got to speak with everyone and see them teach and just just really appreciate Johnny and how good he was for me from, eight, you know, the eight years I played and how valuable he was as I progressed. And it's just obviously meeting him at the right time, you know, stars align and all that. And then going to college and having all the constant interaction, he was so keen to help. And obviously I was, he probably had the right work ethic to go about things the way he wanted us to. And yeah, it just all sort of worked out, didn't it? And well, it all worked out to a certain extent. You know, it didn't work out on the line. I'm carrying now, you know, <laughs> something went wrong, but... <laughs> But as you had that success then moving on to the north of Ireland where you won in 2013 and in 2014, and you said working with Johnny, were you more of a technical or a field player? Were you trying to marry both? No, it's kind of feel. Um, obviously, the balance of the right technical skills and management mechanics and fundamentals. And you know, we'd structure practice sessions and practice weeks and warm-ups and post, even post-round, you know, go pretty technical for 15, 20 minutes, just sort of laying bricks one at a time, you know, just to try and get better technically. and not have you know the the big miss left or whenever I started working with Johnny it would have been the weak flip you know and going about things the right way when I first went to see Johnny you know I'm swinging the club like 104 mile an hour which just wouldn't do nowadays but you know always sort of even over the winter whenever I was in Toledo always working in things and getting the club stronger using my body stability controlling the club face and trying to gain one mile an hour club speed every single month and obviously you can't that's not possible over five years but it was possible you know most some months anyway and then before you know it you're turning pro and swinging at 122 and it's all good you know and as you started to progress there as you said we moved on from your Irish close and your east of Ireland win and winning the north of Ireland in Port Rush on two occasions and being from Northern Ireland was that the one that you always chased the most um I suppose it was yeah it was sort of like my dad played in it and it's the one you know you grew up and you went to watch and you know, whenever you're like eight years of age and it was always, or well, maybe not eight, say 10 or 11 when you're a bit gullible, but you understand golf and you're like, 
does Tiger play in the North, you know? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a bit, yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess it was nice to win. And um, yeah, it's obviously massively cherish it and defend it as well was even better. But um, I guess I did grow up always wanting to win it. But I think by the time I did win it, it sort of set my sights even higher. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> Yeah. Keep reaching, keep pushing. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it was... Um, yeah, I mean, it's cool, isn't it? So here, look, it is what it is. On top of those wins at home, you also had college wins in the US, one of those being the Tallis Park Challenge in 2015. Yes. Did you think in your own head, I know obviously you probably weren't too, uh, there wasn't too much of a post mortem at the time, but did you think there was a certain amount that you had to achieve before you went for the paid ranks? Um, not really. I just sort of wanted to, I wanted to turn pro. I'd, I'd already made my mind up that I was turning pro early that year after as soon as I graduated and it was like to win well to win that there's a good college tournament um good players um I think I beat Audrey Arnas by one who's actually out here on tour now and um I'm caddying so <laughs> give him a bit of slack <laughs> well yeah but um <laughs> yeah it, it, I just think it gave me a bit of belief you know to go and win a good college event and shoot low scores you know the last couple of rounds and win by one and stuff but um there was no set criteria. I just wanted to feel that when I turned pro, I wasn't making up the numbers. I was going to make a living out of the game and be able to win straight away. And well, I say win, you know, win on the challenge tour straight away anyway. Maybe not the European tour. And as you did make that transition into the pro ranks, there was no messing about. It was straight after college. You didn't want to spend the summer playing amateur golf. No. What was your what was the reaction to that? I suppose you were kind of an outlier in that regard. Well, I played all my golf in the States and you know, I had a high ball flight, strong ball flight. I just didn't, I mean, I just didn't see the point in coming home and playing St. Andrew's Lynx Trophy, British Amateur, Walker Cup and stuff, you know, and obviously there's no guarantee of making the Walker Cup anyway, but, you know, it's just outside the top 50 in the world at the time. So probably, you know, well, would have had a chance anyway, but um, I just had no interest in that. I just wanted to play pro golf and get after it, you know. It also worked in your favour as there was a lot of interest from management companies and, how were you kind of prepared for that? I suppose you go from, you were in college in America, being on the Irish team and everything. It was just a case of turn up on the day and play the events or turn up to the airport. And now it's turned into a business. Yeah. So as a, again, it's all about, you know, growing up and becoming an adult, isn't it? Um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. You know, it was just signing with the right management company. I ended up going with Black Star, a guy, Jeremy Robinson. And it was brilliant. You know, I was able to pick my starts on the challenge tour and, he was able to sort stuff out for me. So, yeah, you know, it's just definitely the right decision in the end, you know, but um, I'm glad I did it. You certainly did have a great start on the Challenge Tour that year. And you, I think you made the cut in every event. It was your worst result, even it was 40 seconds. So you, you did hit the ground running. What did that do for your confidence? It was good. It was good. Um, yeah, it was sort of a solid year. I don't think I had many chances. Maybe maybe you had a couple of top tens but I didn't really have many chances to win that year I was just sort of the solid middle of the road probably had loads of finish around loads of finishes around 20th not sure actually but sort of that winter that I knew I was good enough player to play on tour but I needed to get a little bit better in a few areas and then the following year I played even better um, you know had several top fives and chances to win and stuff but yeah it was just just a really good solid grounded first year as a pro and it gave me confidence and it sort of let me know that things were ready and what I was doing with you know Johnny and my coaching team was working so yeah it was good. The natural progression as you said you were going into 2016 but before that came about you to go through Q school how was that experience? Uh, before 2016? 
Um, well, I went to stage two and it would have been odds on to get my card, um, my European tour card. And I just, it's one of these things. I had a freak injury accident, you know, a tore ligament in my wrist or, well, actually in my hand, you know, up my arm, right to my elbow, um, somewhere along that ligament. Um, warming up for the third round and had to pull out. And yeah, it was, you know, when it happened the first time, it was kind of the initial disappointment that day of, this is horrible you know, being in fifth place and all that. But then a couple of days later, it was real, hang on, a full year on the Challenge Tour in 2016 would probably do me the world of good because I, I sort of thought that, you know, first year as a pro, just turn pro, invites, earn my card, and then go into tour school. Maybe if I had went to the tour straight away, it might have been a bit quick, which you see with some guys. So I looked at the positives. I found positives in it, and then I was fine. Just used that winter to get better and came out a better player the following year. Going into that following year and... You picked up, like as you said there, there was injuries to follow. And do you think maybe looking in your own case or even now is your time as caddying and coaching that players neglect injuries at a young age because of the pressures to make it in such a competitive game? Yeah, well, there's there's so many injuries in golf and this is a thing that you don't think it's going to happen to you. It happens. You know, I always looked after my body and did the right things, worked with a physio, went to the gym. But it happens, you know, I had tore ligament three times in the end, had tendonitis, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> at one stage I wasn't able to brush my teeth, you know, <laughs> so try brushing your teeth for your left hand. It's not very easy, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, yeah, it's, I think it is neglected and I neglected it a little bit in the rehab stage. I rushed back one time to try and play Kazakhstan thinking that, you know, oh, if I can get back here, I'll be invincible. And I just went there and played rubbish and, or you know re re well I don't know what the word is I didn't re tear it but um set myself back about another three four weeks by trying to play so hey look it's um everyone here of all these injuries in tour and you always think oh that'll not be me and he's a bad back and he's a bad neck but here you have to look after yourself because it can happen to anybody you know I'm after slipping a disc here on my back and last night I was like oh I'll go football train and I have to get out of the house but sure I'm sitting here now, I'll be like an old man getting off the chair once we're finished chatting. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. It's again, you, you just don't think it's, you think you're okay and you think it won't happen to you. But I mean, have you, you know what I mean? It's, you got to do the stuff on a daily basis, mobility to sort of manage your body, regardless of what you do. If you're a golfer, even as a caddy, I still do it too. I struggle with my knees and stuff. So here, look, it's life skills, isn't it? It is. We're learning. <laughs> and as you started to battle injury, were you starting to get fed up with the game or were you still determined that you're ever going to overcome this? Uh, I mean, a balance, yeah. Sort of the game started to battle me and, and I, um, I worked with a uh, performance coach at the time and then I got rid of him, which was probably a bad decision at the time. Um, just because he, basically, just to have the, him in my environment, the, the positivity was great, but he just didn't know probably as much about golf as I wanted him to and it started to annoy me and when he was gone and then things were going downhill you needed that sort of someone to speak to and, and someone to be positive and he you know your game starts to beat you up and you don't feel very good about things and you're not motivated to practice and it's a it's a downward spiral and you need to surround yourself with positivity and, and um, it just, that's just the way it went for me injuries missed cuts and I at one stage even when I was injured and I couldn't practice you know I couldn't take a divot is what I'm saying I could still hit a few drivers and do short game and stuff I, you know, I felt so invincible about my game. And then about seven or eight missed cuts in a row later, 
you're like, hang on a minute, I'm actually crap. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's like, now we're in 2017, by the way, and it's like, hang on, I'm going to lose my challenge for a card here. And I, I should have took a medical, but I know, I was like, I'm not taking a medical, I'll be all right. You know, I don't need to practice. I'm, I'm so good. You know, and then maybe you're not so good, you know? <laughs> and as it became time then that because of injury, you had to step away. Were you ever just fed up at the game that you were going to completely walk away from it? Or was there always that interest there? Oh, a couple. Oh, of course, a couple of times. Um, I, yeah, yeah, you're like, I'm so done with this. You know, I'm, I'm not, I remember being in France one time and missing the cut by at least 10 shots and just being like, right, I'm done. I'm done. And then I remember watching the, so I missed the cut on Friday morning or something, absolute rubbish. And then by Sunday, I think it was a week of the US Open. And I don't know who won just by law of averages, probably Brooks. But anyway, and then just by Monday morning, being completely buzzing again, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just, that's just what golf does to you, you know, and okay, I eventually stepped away and I was glad to step away, but sort of my, my career was so all over the place, you know, where I've sort of been intrigued to sort of help others now. And obviously I got into caddying too, which I absolutely love doing, but um, even just from the, you know, performance coaching side of things, it was kind of like, my experiences and what I went through and the ups and downs and the support networks and stuff. And it's just, just out of interest really, you know, and it's, it's been a strange up and down journey. As that journey continued and you're playing competitively, days were coming to an end. Did you have that outlook into what you wanted to do in the future in terms of the caddying or in terms of the performance coaching, or did you just step away and reassess after that? Not really. Um, whenever I stopped playing, it was like people are telling me, you know, go do, you know, PGA and stuff. And I was like, well, no, I, I don't want to do that. Um, no knock on the PGA. I just don't want to do that. I'm not interested in coaching golf. You know, whenever you look at some of the, you look at a coach like Johnny Foster, for example, you know, like why would anyone ever come to me when they can just go to him? Not, the, you know, it's like just from a truthful point of view. And plus that didn't interest me. So um, I worked in an office for four months selling Google ads. So I was using my degree in marketing and I love that. You know, I, I love the whole team culture, go to work, pints after work, bit of crack. No, well, I say no stress, a lot different kind of stress. You know, you, at the end of, you were still paid at the end of the week, you know? So uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a good experience, but that, that gave me time to sort of find myself and figure out what I wanted to do. And then Caddian came along early the next year with Michael Hoey, obviously. And, one thing led to another and here I am, you know. Yeah, you've had a great uh, time caddying, obviously, but how did you get into it? Was it just a, a chance phone call with Michael Hoy? I know your friends are. Yeah, well, mates with Hoy. Um, basically, when I was working in the office in Belfast, he, you know, he had his partial European tour card from a decent 2018. Um, and he was going to get 16 or 17 starts. And there was a couple of events in Australia in January. And I was like, all right, you know, let's go do a couple of weeks. He played well. I went in a couple of weeks, really, really enjoyed it, um, was making more money, um, was just like, well, hang on, I, I want to do this, and away I went, you know, and did the year for Michael, obviously it didn't work out, he didn't keep his card or anything, but um, just really, really enjoyed it, and sort of thought, this is this is what I want to do, and then did a few weeks for a few other people, and started the year with a young Scottish lad, Craig Howie, very good young player, and then worked with Foxy, and yeah, this, this is me now, you know, pretty set, love what I do, so. Just a quick pause here to share with you Energy Golf, an app that I've been introduced to over the last number of months. Energy Golf is a golf development platform 
They are committed to providing a service that allows you to reach your maximum potential by improving your mindset, creating physical longevity and funding your golf career. What they've done is take the professional tour team experience and brought it to you through their platform so that you can have your very own tour team in your pocket. Energy Golf offers the ability to learn from leading professionals in the fields of fitness, nutrition, breeding, caddying, psychology, business, as well as proven tour winners and many more. There are also courses based around the mental aspects of golf, such as mental toughness and confidence. Claim your one month free trial by visiting www.energy.com and be sure to tell them that Talk Birdie to Me sent you. Energy Golf is E-N-A-H-G-Y dot com. Now back to our chat with Chris Elfridge. Back on tour, keeping busy. It's, yeah. it's good to see, but what do you find your biggest differences are going from competing and now obviously you're still competing at a high level, but just in a different capacity? The biggest differences, um, well, well the, first of all, on your week off, you don't have to practice, you know, it is a week off. <laughs> You know, as a tour player or tour caddy, you work about 30 weeks a year, give or take. You might do 33 at a push, maybe 27 or something. But as a player, you know, you probably take a couple of days off, maybe the very odd full week off. But as a caddy, you just, you know, your time off is your time off. Like I had a week off there in, in September, full week. Nothing to do. A little bit of, a little bit of coaching, but um, just so much time. Spend time with my girlfriend, chill out drink way too much coffee you know it was, it was great you know just sort of thinking to yourself Foxy's grinding he's sending me videos you know he's on the par three at Fox Hills and he's doing this and he's in the gym and he's going to see a psychologist and I'm drinking flat whites you know I'm like <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't be more on the other end of the spectrum just chilled yeah, exactly. out so it's great uh, going into tournament week then how does your preparation differ like are you still out in the course? I know uh, there's, I've spoke to a few caddies before and they say the most work they do is in the practice rounds leading up to the event. Yeah, the practice days, um, there's obviously a lot can be, you know, there's so much to do. The books are so useful now, but hitting so many of the shots to different pin positions around the green, so many of the lag putts, understanding the plays. I, I, I like a bit of the decade system what Scott Fawcett does in America, sort of use it. Um, it's helpful. Um, especially with Foxy, with him being a long hitter too. So it's good, you know, even on the narrow holes, he can he can hit two iron. Like he carries his two iron about 235 meters, which is two, just over 260 yards or so around that anyway. So yeah, obviously I'm so used to meters now. Um, so it's, it's different. He hits his three with 250 meters, put it like that. So it's, uh, yeah, use that. All the prep, you know, wideness of fairways, where you want to be. This week in Scotland, it's all about the rough, you know, the rough either side. Some's a bit thinner, some's a bit thicker. Good good lines up the green, good angles coming in. Some, you know, hitting it down the right side of the fairway. Obviously how the ball bounces too is a big part of it. But some weeks it's been fine. Some weeks prep's pretty easy. People can overthink it. And then other weeks there's a lot of prep required. But for me, it's it's a big thing is understanding the plays off the tee where you're trying to hit it to, depending on the wind direction. What the ball is going to do when you're out of position, rolling up to the greens. Always having, always having a place on the green you can hit it. If you're out of position, say you know, say you're 150 or whatever, in the rough and your lie's okay. Now it's obviously if it's buried, you can't reach the green. But always knowing, hang on, I can hit it here and we can make par and move on. You know, this is fine to all pins. Little things like that, you know, just just having sort of a bit of a strategy. And but here it's all about making Foxy feel as prepared as possible. You know, they spend so much time in the range testing equipment. Foxy would uh, crack a driver or three wood face 
at least every two weeks. So the yeah, so the amount of time we spend in the range with restrictions, like even this, even today, you know what I mean? It's it's gone. Driver's gone. We couldn't hit driver towards the end of the round. It's gone. So is that a common trend on tour? It's I wouldn't say it's common. You know, Foxy's one of the most high speed guys out there. Um, if you see the build of him, so he swings a driver one thirty. You know, so um, yeah, we're always fighting equipment and getting the right stuff, the right launches. But here, one thing leads to another. You know. And you mentioned there, obviously, you're working with Ryan Fox at the moment, but you've mentioned Craig Howie and you were with Michael Howie for a while. And what is it like moving from player to player? I presume they all have different preferences. or Yeah, they all have different preferences. Howie was sort of old school. He'd been on tour for, you know, 16 years. And, you know, it was kind of like sort of at the start, it was treated, you know, you're just his mate helping him, you know, and you're helping him coaching, coaching him, pot, you know, a little bit of coaching with putting and stuff. and you know, different targets and going about your, just making the days as productive as possible and then feeling good of being prepared going into the event. Craig's a new young Scottish guy. was one of his first caddies. One of his first caddies. Um, he's just a young guy who's, he's actually done quite well this year, but he'll be a, he'll be a name for the future for sure. And then Foxy's been on tour about five years. So he would be a bit more intense with the practice and, you know, feeling ready, but everyone's different. Look here, it's, it's not, there's not one right way or one wrong way. Foxy will pri- prioritize rest, but, you know, he wants to see the golf. Like, even this week, we played 18 holes twice, um, and then we did a good solid day on the range on Monday, so we probably done as much as anyone. But then some weeks, it's like, hey, look, there's not that much preparation required. Game feels good. Let's, let's rest up. And it's all different, you know. You just As long as here, if the player feels ready, you've done a good job. Certainly. And I suppose there's one thing with players is about staying in the moment in that, if they get in a position, they can get a bit overexcited or think too far ahead. Do you ever find yourself in that scenario or are you a bit more removed from it? Um, no, but what I do find as a caddy sometimes um, it's quite quite a unique experience where like, say you're like a narrow hole or something or or even just a standard hole. Picture any hole in your mind if whoever's listening or whatever. And let's say you hit like a little baby draw down the left, not a very good shot into the rough or, or let's say into a pot bunker. You think to yourself as a caddy, like, for fuck's sake, why did he hit it there? You know, it's kind of like, oh, that's, you know, and you're sort of like, you're almost rolling your eyes inward going, fuck, you know, and then you go play golf yourself and your wake's off and the ball's going absolutely sideways and you, and you remember how hard the game is, you know. <laughs> I certainly know that feeling. You're so used to like seeing good golf and it's just even with, even today, you know, when you're putting and he's got like a 45 foot putt and it's, it's still a, it might not be over two humps or whatever, but it's reasonably flat bit of break or whatever. And he sort of hits it and it's like four or five feet away. And you're like, oh, you know, he's giving himself a wee tester. And then like, it's extremely hard to get it dead, dead every time, you know? So I, I find myself constantly thinking like that, that like, I need to remind myself how hard this game is. And if no one, if that was me, I would do worse. So just accept it. Um, but obviously I never have conversations with him like that. Like, why did you hit it there? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to keep yourself yeah, in a job. Uh, yeah, you just have to remind yourself sometimes, like, this game's hard. You know, he didn't mean to hit it there. It's fine. And I know you're part of a team with Ryan, obviously, with his coaches and different people involved. And would you do much of a post-mortem after tournaments, or is it just kind of move on week to week and he has those discussions with other people? Yeah, no, we have, obviously have a post-mortem look at the stats, uh, how to prepare for the next week, Um, sometimes changing equipment, you know, trialing different things, Um, 
you know how you, how we you know we changed irons to get you know different launches and changing the grooves and some of the short irons because they're going too far and stuff typically the newer grooves go a bit shorter in the Srixons. so getting the gapping right changing the loft slides getting the clubs checked yeah all, all those little things have to be done and then of course with him it's a constant battle with the three wooden driver and even the putter as well he uses the long putter you know that sort of you know uh it's no matter what way you look at it it's sort of like you're is it the you up the left arm so it's you're not well, it's, it's almost like cheating, isn't it? But it's not cheating, according to the rules. Probably should be cheating. But, but you know what I mean? So trying that and then trying the short putter. And the short putter is better for speed. And the, the arm lock putter is better for starting it online. You know, so you're always refining and trying to make gains. But it just goes back to, look, if the player's confident and comfortable and the prep's done, all you can do, that's it. You've done your job. It's time to go, you know. That's certainly something that you can uh, drive yourself up the walls. There's so much to look at between tournaments by the sounds of it. Ah, completely. Completely. You can completely overdo it. What do they call it? Uh, paralysis by analysis and stuff. You see it all the time. The golfers in general are mad people. I was the same myself. And looking back last year, you were in Port Rush caddying for Chan Kim. How was that? So obviously you had home ex- or you had local knowledge from being there and winning around there twice. Yeah, so uh, it was uh, sort of got a last minute phone call. I was in France with Hoey, and um, I got Harry got in touch with me, who's Rory McIlroy's caddy, Harry Diamond. He was like, Hey, there's a job next week for an American Japanese guy who I'd never heard of, truthfully. And it was like, All right, okay, who is it? Do you want to do it? And of course, I'm like, Yes, of course, I want to do it. <laughs> so turns out he's actually a really good player he's in plays in a lot of majors he got up to like 70th in the world at one stage and um, plays out in japan sir yeah just he didn't have a great week uh got off to a poor start i think we missed the cup by three or four shots in the end but that was a really cool that was my first major so that was a really cool experience and um just even majors in general are cool you know Wingfoot a couple of weeks ago was pretty cool as well so that was my next thing i'd say that was pretty interesting uh the tough setup there. I've never seen more videos about the rough and just the condition of the course. How was that in terms of your own preparation even? It was good. It was good. Our strategy was the same as Bryson's, you know, bomb driver. Um, it worked for Bryson. It didn't work for us. <laughs> Thank fuck he hit like three fairways over the two rounds with driver or something. But it was. Ju- it just wasn't his week. Um, we got a horrendous draw as well. Um, we were out first on Thursday and it was almost dark and freezing when we teed off and the rough was soaking. So he's like two over most of the round, makes a couple of late bogeys to shoot four over. And we're like, that's not bad. Obviously, the couple of late bogeys kind of hurt us. But if he had a shot two over, it would have been a great score. And then by the, by the afternoon time, it's like 23 degrees and sunny and loads of people are breaking par. And then Friday afternoon, we're out late and like we're already on the cut line and it's absolutely pumping wind. And it's like he gets above the hole on the second hole. It's like five foot above the hole for par and hits it 12 foot by. Double bogey. Just greens were just like glass and we were already forcing the issue. So, But it was so tough. Um, great experience. Great for me to see. Great for me to see how good the guys are. But even even from a coaching's perspective, you know, seeing all the guys and how they prepare for tournaments. And Bryson, I'm not, you know, <laughs> how to put this in it. I'm not Bryson's. I wouldn't be a Bryson fan. You know, put it like that. But I completely, but I, you know what, that week I completely, you know, I, I'd be like a Xander Shoffley fan. I think he's amazing. I spent so much time watching him in the weekend. I watched him warm up every day with his whole team and stuff. But I really admire Bryson. Like his attention to detail, 
and how he prepares. You know, there's so much you can learn from that and watching him and the intensity of every single shot. And it's brilliant, you know. Yeah, I saw on your Instagram that obviously you had a great experience after Ryan missed the cut, but you got to watch a lot of people over the weekend. Was it a big learning curve for you in terms of caddying and your coaching side of things? Yeah, I mean, I, I watched Rory play a couple of holes on the course. Just, I don't know why, just boredom really. But um, I watched the guys warm up and warm down, you know, and watch some of their coaches and their coaching team and what they're doing and why they're doing it and the discussions. And that was amazing. And it's such, um, you know, it's... It, you just realize how good these guys are, but how hard they work, how accountable they are, how much they do the right things. They have such a plan in place for all parts of their game, you know, and it's, you can see why these guys are as good as they are compared to, you know, say you go to like Challenge Tour event and guys are all over the place, you know, they're coaching each other. <laughs> and it's, yeah, but I'm obviously I'm being a bit harsh, but that's, <laughs> it's kind of like how it is, you know, but, uh, it's uh yeah it was a surreal experience would you say it was the toughest course setup you've ever seen it was yeah it really was especially in friday afternoon i mean the average score was about six over on friday afternoon and it was like mental you know some of the lies you got and it was just so windy as well I remember a couple of shots foxy hit like really good shots and just a horrendously firm bounce over the back and removing yourself from the situation as being a caddy there do you think that's enjoyable watching the players go through that much of a, a battle? Um, I loved it. You know, I, I think I've always watched. Yeah, you know what? I think I think I do. I think I always did enjoy watching people struggle. Um, maybe just because golf beat me up in 2017, 2018. But I, I think it is. As a spectator, obviously, you still want to see some birdies and stuff. But, I mean, it's only a couple of events a year. I know they have... Um, a few events they had one in illinois as well it was a really tough setup didn't they but the u.s opens the u.s open it should be tougher you know like it what bryson did this year is just surreal to be honest what, what did he finish five or six under bar i mean it's six under i think i think his round on sunday where he shot three under to win or two i don't know what he shot let's say it was three under i think that's a decent enough guess like that is just that's as good as shooting 59 at a normal easy golf course on the PGA Tour, you know, that's how good that is. And to do it in the final round of a major when you've never won a major is like, um, and he's massively in the spotlight for being completely out there and a bit wonky with everything, you know, the immediate attention he gets. So, you know, fair play to him. And how was it then coming back to Galgarham Castle? You know, for you, it's obviously a home event, but there was no, no fans there. I suppose you probably would have recognized a few faces around the place and kind of coming back a different course setup. Yeah, it was... Yeah, it was very different. But Galgorm was set up really tough too. It was fantastic. The greens were quick. Um, the rough was thick. The first morning with, you know, Foxy and, and Shane Lowry and stuff, those boys were so cold. It was like four degrees and Foxy didn't have a thermal on. And on the third tee, he like hit a three wood about 50 yards. He hit like six inches behind the ball. It was just so, so, so cold. <laughs> it was like, um, it's a pretty big climate change to come back and it was just a windy week and he, he played rubbish as well but um we lost two balls off the first and the second round as well playing five off the tee so that was kind of um doesn't help you know but um made a quadruple to start and he actually got it back he was at once i think with four holes to play he needed two birdies or something to make the cut so he did have a chance but um yeah he did quite well to get back to that stage given how cold he was the first day and how bad he played and then what happened but hey it was just just another week you know move on for an event that came in at the 11th hour 
there's quite a positive reaction amongst the players, wasn't there? Yeah, it was brilliant. The, I, I've played Galgorm a hundred times growing up and I played Challenge to event there at least four times, maybe five. Yeah, anyway, regardless, um, it was brilliant. The greens were firm. The greens were quick. The rough was lush. The whole setup was fantastic. The food in the clubhouse was insane. Insane. We're ca- usually, as a caddy, you're lucky to have anything, and we were having steaks for lunch. It was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. Honestly, the whole setup, fair play to them. I think they did a brilliant job. And looking at that event and in caddying as a whole, we've spoken a lot about how your time has been out there the last two years. But we've also checked in a small bit on your coaching side of things and just talk us through that point one performance and where that stemmed from. Yeah, point one performance. Basically, it stemmed from helping a few guys out. Um, it's obviously a small thing. I want to keep it small, you know, work with seven or eight guys, just helping them, you know, obviously be in there, having someone to talk to, sort of mentoring as a little bit as coaching, helping them get better in all the aspects, non-technical. Um just having someone to speak to, obviously a little bit of mind coaching too, Un- unqualified mind mind coaching, of course. I'm not a qualified psychologist, but just just from my own experience and and um, just helping the guys get better and figuring out what we need to do and making a plan and having them accountable to the daily process, weekly reviews. Just here having someone in your team to support you, you know, is is vitally important, and you never sort of want to get lost in the wilderness. So that's. That's what it stems from. And then obviously we come up with specific things we're wanting to achieve and, and games they have to play and be accountable to doing on a daily ba- or weekly basis because every day is different. But um, yeah, it's really good, really enjoyable. How have you found its development? I know you said you're trying to keep it small, but I suppose mind coaching isn't something that would be hugely popular or be kind of a new term in the amateur game. So how have you found the, the progress? I know you've been working with the likes of Tom McGibbon and Hugh O'Hare and the likes. Yeah, well, it's not, it's not so much mind coaching, it's performance coaching. Um, obviously, help them with their mindset and someone to speak to. And But, you know, Hugh, for example, works with a sports psychologist. You know, it's I think that's important too, that they, you know, have the right professionals around them, even for the whole mental health thing. But just have, you know, I'm there to support. I'm there to answer any questions they have. You know, I have lots of experience um, on that side of things. But it's... It's just um, working with those guys is good, but you have to understand everyone's different and it's what works for them. It's not what worked for me or what didn't work for me. It's what works for them. And, you know, going about things in the way to help them flourish and develop and, you know, sort of the balance between getting better technically and managing that and how to spend their time wisely and how we can measure, like, even like technical changes in the range and wedge proximity and how we, how we can measure improvements. And once you start to see improvements and you can always, you know, the magic thing about golf, you can always get better at everything. Basically. I don't know about that for myself. (sighs) Yeah. Well, I know how you feel. (laughs) (laughs) I played a few weeks ago and my driving was a bit skeptical, but (laughs) anyway, that's not, not the priority right now, but just coming up with games and stuff and, you know, keeping, you know, spending obviously you have to build a lot of trust with people too, spending time with them, playing golf with them and keeping it fun too and, and coming up with games that they can really track and, and games that I would have played in college as well in America whenever I was there and, and what I used to get better and sort of drip feeding that into them and, and some of them are like, No, I don't like that and that's fine. And then there's some, you know, the different games, I don't like that game, I really like that game. Well that game's a game changer for me or that game's total shit. I really don't like that. <laughs> you know, but that's fine. It's um it's good, you know, then some of them are popular and they all have a purpose and 
stuff out of them so it's good yeah it's very interesting as you talk there i suppose it's everyone's unique and some things work for some people some work for others and and things like that but what is your plan going forward is that something you want to develop more on or are you more focused on the caddying side of the game oh caddying's caddying's my career that that's only ever going to be a side thing um and it's it's busy enough at the moment you know guys getting ready for a few guys getting ready euro pro q school and couple of guys in america and stuff so yeah it's 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 as busy as i want it to be um and there's it's not all pros and elite amateurs and there's a few guys that play off one and two handicap as well well suppose they are elite amateurs depends how you look at it but you know they're you know it's 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 busy enough um obviously i'll have a bit more time in the winter but it's good i really really enjoy it and it's um it's fun and it's uh it's something i want to keep doing but it's never going to be my i never wanted to be my full-time thing you know it's I just want to help a sort of niche group of people become the best version they can be of themselves. And I enjoy it too. I think if I did it full time, I wouldn't enjoy it. So I wouldn't do it, you know? Everything in uh, in small de- or in uh, in small amounts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're someone who has seen the game through a lot of different lenses between playing, caddying, coaching. So what's some just brief advice that you've had for young players coming through? Uh, hit the ball as far as you can. That would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? <laughs> and then, then you can straighten it up. But no, I mean, a big a big thing is to try and make your practice and training as intense as possible. Like, you know, some of the some of the games that, like, I would share with my guys that we do, even we do this challenge where, you know, you do – and I, this would have stemmed back from me in college whenever we, I would have did it with some of the boys on my team. And we would have had massive consequences on the line. Um, I'll explain the game first and then tell you some of the consequences. So, like, once you make a bogey, it's game over. So you tee off in the first after a long day's practice, back tees, tough course. Our home course was US Open venue. And it's like you're teeing off at like seven in the evening, it gets dark at half eight or whatever. And it's like, all right, boys, once we make a bogey, it's out of here. Unless you birdie the very next hole. Do you know what I mean? So like if you want to play six, you have to you have to go par, par. And if you do make a bogey, you must birdie the next. So we would do that at the end of a day's practice just to make practice intense, make it mean something. Because when you're teeing off in that situation, and we would put stuff on the line too. Of course, we were college boys having a good time. And like I remember doing it, for example, and we would say there was four of us doing it together on any given day. And it would be like, right, we all start off here with four. We would say we're going out partying that night. It's like, all right, we all start off with four drinks here. And for every hole you advance, you're allowed one more drink. You know what I mean? So like if you have a six, if you want to go out that night and go and have a good time and, and all the things that come in college, it's like, and you have a six-footer in the first for par. That means a lot more than a six-footer in, for par in a, in a championship, you know? Like, the, the intensity of the practice. And, and it's like, whenever you're doing that, you're not thinking about your club face going back. You're thinking about, hang on, how do I get the ball as close to the target as possible here? And you get really absorbed in the training part of it, you know? Yeah, it's very interesting, Joe. Like, when you said there about intense, because it's something I haven't really heard before. Like, obviously, you hear practice with a purpose and stuff, but... Um, in the minimal practice that I do? It's very hard to do to practice for a purpose, you know? It's very hard to do, and, and it slips all the time. And it, and no matter who you are, you're going to slip. You know, you, obviously, the whole idea of practice for a purpose and intensity, and you want your, say your playing intensity is a constant eight, so you want your practice to be like, that's hard to do. But if you can just try and keep it as best you can do with the energy you have and compete against people and have a consequence on the line, you know, be accountable to what you're doing, why you're doing it. You're not just hitting balls for the sake of it. Don't go to the range for an hour and hit balls working in your club face in the way back. Cause what does that actually mean for getting better at golf? Yeah. If you're hitting the seven iron in the range and you know, you're hitting at 170, well, what's your proximity to the target? 
you know, how many can you get in a gap? How many can you get inside 10 feet? If you go out in the golf course and hit 10 shots over five holes, how far away are you averaging? Okay, I'm averaging 12 yards. Well, that's not very good, is it? If you want to be an elite player, let's go out and do it the next day. Can we get this to 10 yards? That's definitely, I suppose, a lot of food for thought there because for me, I go to the range and I hit balls and like, I'm just hitting them out there. I'm like, oh, that felt nice. That felt nice. So I wouldn't be, you know, wherever it finishes, it's grand. I don't have to worry about walking after it if the finish is left or right. So Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's sort of the level, like, you know, the sort of intermediate level. Let's say you're uh, an eight handicap or 12 handicap or whatever. If you're sort of playing around that level, you're, mo- you're more physically challenged. So actually hitting the middle of the face is is an issue. But if you're an elite player and you're scratcher below and you're playing championships, whatever, you know how to do it. You've said it, you know, go on and hitting 57 irons in a row isn't going to do you any good. Yes, if you haven't played much golf, you might knock off a wee bit of rust here and there. It's better than nothing, I suppose, but it's almost a waste of time, isn't it? Yeah, very true. Well, Chris, I'd like to thank you for your time today because I, I know you're under time pressure. I thought it'd be a quick chat, but I'm, I'm holding you on here on your, your evening in the bubble. Uh, but just before I do let you go, I got some quick fire questions. Yep, go ahead. you prefer links or parkland? Parkland all day. Practice on the range or on the course? On the course, 100%. <laughs> what age did you reach scratch? 15, I think. Your best golf memory to date? Winning the Irish Close, my first championship with my dad there. And the best Irish player you played with? There's been a few. Um, <laughs> Paul Dunn, Paul Dunn. So I grew up the same age as him. He was amazing. The short game was absolutely insane at stages. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time today, Chris. I really appreciate it. And best of luck for the rest of the season. Yeah, no problem. Enjoyed it. That's it for this week's episode. I'd just like to say a huge thank you again to Chris for his time. And it's great to be sharing episodes with all of you, my listeners. Remember, stay tuned to my social media channels in the coming days for all the details regarding placing your order for the Crested Accessories. And the podcast will be released again next Tuesday. So thank you all, chat soon, and please, talk birdie to me.